by director and writer Darius Mar Martyr to discuss his film, Stone of Metal, which I absolutely love. I saw this film in 2019 at TIFF, and it actually it blew me away. And I'm so excited to talk to you today, Darius. Oh, wonderful. I'm so glad you got to see it in a theater. I'm kind of sad that people won't be able to listen to it in the theater, but I'm going to tell you, I don't think watching it on TV or on a laptop is going to change it because I've seen it in theater and on my laptop, and the sound comes through very well. Like it's, I still got the same visceral reaction watching it on my laptop as I did in the cinema, which I think is a really great achievement for you and for the sound team. Like you guys did, did what you had to do. Oh, you know, that's great to hear because I don't talk to, to people every day that have had both experiences. And you know, I, I it's interesting too. Did you watch it again recently on a, on a computer? Yeah, I watched it this morning and I watched it last week for a special press screening that was done online. So like it was the same for me. And today was actually a bit different because like it's snowing outside. So like my apartment is very quiet. So the song really was very different today than it was the other night where it was where my windows were open and I could hear traffic and everything outside. Oh, I love that. I love I love that concept of the experience of the film changing depending on the weather. I think that's really cool. And you're absolutely right. There's nothing better than this than the silence after a snow. It's a very specific kind of a, an experience. It is it's very different and, is, and it kind of actually relates to the film a bit because The Sound of Metal is a film about, it's about sound. It's not about music, it's about, I think, language and sound and atmosphere. One of the things about the film, because we know it's about a musician who suddenly loses his hearing played by Rizomet. And one of the things that really grabbed my attention when I first saw the film is how it starts. So this is where we're going to start off our discussion because the right. film starts out very noisy. It's, it's very discordant and it starts with the screen black. You don't, you don't know what's going on. All you hear is the mics getting feedback and then we're plunged straight into this auditory and sensory overload of noise. And then we get the visuals and it's like Riz at the drums drumming away. Then the, the lights are flashing and Lou, who's played by Olivia Cook, she's singing and screaming at the top at the top of her lungs. So I want to just go into the conversation beginning with that because we just plunge us straight into this sensory overload. That's so great that you bring that up and your description of it is so, it, it, it you know, means something to me because it's intuitive and that description of hearing that what as you said feedback without an image you know that that that's very much uh, a part of of a signaling of this language and that that's so important to me and specifically even for the fact that it's feedback feedback and distortion are such a specific sonic language and i think that it's building to that moment when you see the first frame of the movie, the first image of the movie. And, you know, I'm certainly interested in this idea of what that feedback is, what it means when you see that first frame of Ruben and that sonic realm that he's in there, that's the space, that feedback, that intensity, that almost violent noise is the space that could be termed for him, the sound of metal. That's a space that he's looking to get back to the whole movie. And the question is, what is that space actually? What we might see in that frame 
and certainly something that's interesting to me about it is that there's a monster lurking, but that monster isn't deafness. It might feel like it's deafness uh, for especially an able-bodied viewership or a hearing population. It might, we might think that that monster is deafness and that that's where that comes from. But I know that that monster, if there is one, is, is alive in that first frame. And I think that that is within him. And that is the essence of feedback, you know, that echo chamber and that thing that we try to keep at bay, that noise within us. And so, yes, I think that that opening scene is really begging us on a very muscle memory to remember maybe that noise that we heard in the beginning and, and start to question, do we want to get back to that? Is that where is, is or, or not so much about getting, do we want to get back to that, but what is it to try to get back at all in life, you know? Okay, so one of the reasons I wanted to talk, and I'm glad you mentioned um, people who can't hear it, is because I myself am actually suffering from slow hearing loss. I have multiple sclerosis. So one of the side effects is that is I'm losing my hearing in both ears, more in wow. my left ear than my right. Wow. And when I first saw this film at TIFF, it was two and a half weeks after I had a craniotomy. I had a tumor removed and I have a metal plate in my head. So the thing is, is my, the way how I was hearing sound after my, my surgery had changed. And I remember when I spoke to my neurologist, he said, you're going to experience sound differently for a while because part of your skull is gone and your bone sound travels through bone differently to how it would travel through metal. Right. And with the hearing loss, I've had, I get tinnitus. And I do get like moments of just sudden absolute silence. I'll hear the muffling or I hear like a, like a high pitch screeching and I can't explain where it's coming from. But then with the surgery and seeing this film literally two and a half weeks after that surgery, I was experiencing films sonically different. And then when I, when I watched this film in the theater, I remember I was with my friend Courtney and when we came out, I said, I've never experienced a film like that in my life because not only could I relate to Ruben, but I did understand what you were saying, like you were talking about feedback, because I was imagining like if I do eventually lose even half of my hearing or all of it, I'm going to have the same struggles with it. And I'm going to be hearing song differently. And it made me look, I, it's kind of weird to say look at song differently, but it did make me look and listen to song differently than I did before I even started to lose my hearing and before I even had the surgery. That's amazing. I mean, you, you're, that's the closest kind of personal experience that I've heard to this process. And I've heard a lot of them because unfortunately so many people do go through it, but I feel like you've had a really direct experience with this. And what's fascinating to me about it and both heartbreaking, but also really illuminating is, is your, your kind of relation, like what you describe as your relationship to sound and this kind of memory of sound or coming back to sound that's just so fascinating that we hold that that memory that almost muscle memory of of sound and how heartbreaking it is when that relationship is severed yeah it, it's it's kind of different because when you have a character like Ruben whose connection to sound is through music and for him there's a scene at close to the end of the film where after he gets the um the implant he tells joe played beautifully by um by paul, paul Racy, that yeah. he he's losing his life he doesn't want to lose his life i for me i didn't think he meant 
literally he was talking about his relationship to sound. His sound is his life. And he was trying to get back to Lou. And to a lot of people, it may seem like codependency, that like he had a dependency on her. I'm like, no, I think it's the fact that she's the only other person in his life who understood sound the way he does. And he's trying to get back to her and trying to get back to their life and their relationship to sound. And when you have such an intimate relationship to to sound, like they're for specific people, it might be sight where they're visual and everything they relate to in the world is visual. And for other people, it's speech. The way they speak is how they relate to other people. And for people who relate to people through music, sound is the way they communicate. And he felt like he was losing his life. And I felt that Absolutely. was a lot. That was one of the main messages of the film. It's about how you communicate with the world. And then when you talk about getting the feedback, there's, it, it was like later on, Don, it might know some question, but I, I got to mention it. It's like, I think my favorite scene is, the ending where for me, the sound of metal isn't about this metal, like he, he's a heavy metal player. It's about this, the world is so noisy. And then at the end, he loses his hearing because of the sound of metal. He accepts his hearing loss because of the sound of metal, like a bell rings and that's it. With the sound of metal, he loses his hearing and he accepts that, he, he embraces that. And then it shows that he realizes he can experience the world without sound because he watches the children and he doesn't need to hear them laughing to know that they're laughing he doesn't need to hear them laughing to know that they're happy oh and, that's wonderful that's yeah. such a beautiful observation and i love that you mentioned the bell the bell rings yeah not only does he not have to watch them to know they're laughing but what's remarkable to me in that experience when i watch it is that he can't even see that they're laughing when he can hear it. Mm. That sometimes the noise in us is so deafening that we miss the beauty of what's actually happening. So I, I think it's just so incredible to think that silence can be deafening depending mm. on whether what's going on inside of us and, and noise can be peaceful, depending on what's going on inside of us. And that's, so really at the, at the end of the day, we aren't really able to hear the laughter or the bells if we have that kind of internal echo chamber, that feedback, mm -hmm. you know. Right, and one of the things about the film is tonal shifts. And I love the way how you and the sound team use sound to translate emotions and to also translate how we experience the world because there's moments where I wondered if, if you ever had a, a moment where you thought, should I make this film completely silent when he does lose his hearing? Because when he joins the rehab house with Joe and the others, he's surrounded by people who can't hear. And there's these two beautiful scenes where they're at the dining table. And we, as an audience who can hear, we heard the clanging of the plates, the dishes, the forks and everything. For them, they're just communicating through vibration when they pound the table to be, um, to be noticed or they're doing their sign language and for me it was about it's this tonal shift where you have the silence and then all of a sudden you have this noise and it, it just kind of reminded me that as people with hearing that we don't very often try to think of the other perspective we don't try to think of how other people might be experiencing our world that's right and I think that you've probably experienced this quite palpably in your life where you are quite aware that what you're going through with everything you described to me, people around you have no idea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I can imagine if I'm, if I'm living into your situation as inadequately as I probably will, but I can imagine times where you might be standing in line at a bank or something and dealing with this tremendous 
like battle to be in that line dealing with this sonic experience or tinnitus which can make anybody crazy and all of these things and someone would might be looking at you and have no idea because they are experiencing that experience in a completely different way and you know people just don't get out of their own orbit very often mm. and so that description you just had said about that experience at that dinner table which is really one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie because it's so purely and simply bringing us into the very framework you're describing wherein for hearing audiences we are a minority in that scene just as ruben is and we but we as that minority get to experience it from both vantages so Ruben is locked in as a minority, meaning he's a hearing person in a deaf world. He's locked into his own sensory experience. We as the viewers, there's a slight amount of dramatic irony because we as the viewers get locked in with Ruben, but then we get to step outside of it back to our own perspective and do exactly what you just said and remember how much we do not experience or think about what other people are experiencing. And so I think that, you know, for me, I, I love that scene so much because there is such complexity in that idea. It's a hyper empathetic language when you go into a first person. I read something in some review that said, you know, I feel like they left a lot out just to focus on Ruben. And I thought to myself, no, <laughs> no, we didn't, because this movie is very purposefully focusing on Ruben. It's it's a it's a very committed first person perspective and it's a committed first person perspective precisely so that we can have those kind of heightened experiences that you just described. I think you put in everything that you needed to because one of my favorite things with films like this is so much is conveyed and said in the moments without dialogue. And I mean verbal dialogue and I'm not even talking about the moments where they do sign language. I mean just watching just watching sure, observe each other. Yep. Like, like there's moments where um Joe just sits and watches Ruben and he's yeah. he's analyzing Ruben and he's just reading him and I love those kind of moments between actors where you can see them just trying to figure it out and he's he's he, he understands so much about Ruben in such a short space of time because he's observant and I think that's one of the things with people with disabilities where we have to learn to observe people who aren't disabled or I should say even visually disabled because I, for me for I with my MS and with my hearing loss and everything I am what you would call, I have an invisible disability. But yeah. a lot of my interactions with people now are I'm more observant. And when you have these, when you, when you go through life having to rely on, on four senses instead of five, you do have to be able to pick up new skills. And I love the scenes where Joe's watching Ruben or even the kids at the school, they're watching him and they're looking for his reactions. And the teacher is watching them watching him. And I just love those kind of moments. Oh. So I don't see that you left anything out. Oh, that's so awesome the way you just voiced that. I, I, I am so interested in what you just said and feel like it's speaking to something that I really witnessed and in working with the deaf community. And I just, I love what you just spoke to, which is this, basically what you're talking about is a hyper empathy that comes from having to contend, especially with an invisible disability. And I think that I saw it I saw that over and over and over again from the deaf. It makes me want to cry thinking about it because it really is that. There is something true about the fact that able-bodied people are free to not have to think this way. 
And they do not build the muscles of empathy in that same way. And so I saw so frequently in the deaf community, I saw so frequently the examples of people watching for other people, watching for those invisible moments when they could see into suffering that wasn't being spoken and moving to help. And it was so moving to me. It really is very touching just thinking about it right now. It was so moving to me to watch this because I, I saw it as a direct cultural representation of what I do not see and feel in the hearing culture or more specifically in cultures outside of people that contend with exactly what you were just describing. It's not necessarily about hearing or not hearing, but it's about maybe not having one of your four senses and especially in an invisible context. And I, I just, I was just so moved by that. And I had one really interesting growing experience personally, which I don't think I've mentioned before, but which was, I took the entire deaf cast to, to dinner yeah. after we were done shooting. And, you know, I had my own experiences had been stretched and, and I think of myself certainly as someone who is sensitive and empathetic, but you know, there's degrees of that. And I took the whole cast out to dinner and I had set up a, a big table in a restaurant, et cetera. And we were all sitting around the table. There's one member of this community, the deaf community in the film, I really tried to represent a very large kind of a view of deaf culture, which is not just one thing. And one of the people in that house is both deaf and blind. He was going blind and he had been raised by two deaf and blind parents and he was losing his sight. He wasn't completely blind. But I went to this restaurant and at one point I looked over at him as we were settling in and people were ordering appetizers, I looked over at him and he was clearly upset and he was texting someone. So I, I asked an interpreter to ask him if anything was the matter. And she told me that he was leaving. He was calling his wife and to pick him up. And I, and I said, why? And she said, well, he's, you know, he can't see in this kind of light, mm. you know, and he can't sit at a rectilinear table setting because he can't see anybody. And not to mention there's no light anyway. So he's pretty much cut off. And I just, I had that moment, which I had so many times in the making of this movie where I thought, yeah, of course. And I didn't think of it, you know? So I, I had the restaurant I asked if they had a, a separate room in the restaurant and I, and I had them turn on all the lights and I had them set up this big kind of big situation where everyone could see each other, just had bright lights on and we all moved. And he ended up having a wonderful evening and he told me that, you know, that was the first time that he had ever experienced someone from outside of his own culture doing something to help him. And I was just like, oh, you know, I don't say it because I'm a hero. It took me a bit to get there, you know, and it was only another representation of my own limitations, mm. you know, but uh, it was really a remarkably touching experience. Yeah. And that's the thing with when we are talking, when we talk about accommodation for people with disabilities, there's some moments in the film that really stood out to me because it made me think about experiences that I also had at doctor's offices. I mentioned my hearing loss, but I also have other things that I stutter sometimes. And I stumble and I and and I trip. And for the actor, that person that you were with, like my kind of when you're talking about it, it kind of reminds me of my sister because my I live with my twin sister and she doesn't have MS or anything like that. And when we go out, she has to watch me because sometimes she she watches the way I walk because she'll notice. She'll be like, okay, Carrie, 
you're dragging your feet a little, you're stumbling and that kind of stuff. And she checks herself and she checks me. And I've seen people watch her. Like sometimes if my legs are tired, she'll give me a seat in the train or the bus. And people will be looking at us and be like, you're too, like, like the two of you are too able-bodied. Like, why is she offering me a seat? And uh-huh. I, she's, she's talked to me about it. She, was, she watches people watch me and she's like, people really don't understand that there's these little things mean so much and that you really should never judge about its cover. But it kind of took me to the scene. There's these two specific scenes in the film. One, where Ruin is going to the doctor to have his hearing tested. And then when he's going to get, he gets the surgery and he gets the implants from the audiologist. And for the two of them, one, the doctor, uh, who's a trained technician, testing people's hearing, I noticed he was talking to, to Ruben, but he wasn't writing out. And, he, you know, like he didn't use a whiteboard to let Ruben know exactly what he was saying. He knows that Ruben is struggling to hear, but he doesn't show just that little bit of accommodation. And then when Ruben has the surgery, the doctor is writing on a whiteboard. And I'm like, shouldn't you be communicating with him in sign language because he still can't hear properly and he's proficient enough to sign in sign language for you to communicate with him? I was like, these are two doctors, two professionals are working. Absolutely. With That's so great. That's so great. No one's ever mentioned that before, but I think you're exactly right. Yeah, you know, how many audiologists know sign language? You know, and most of them don't. You know, it's so crazy. I actually think, honestly, that it's crazy everyone on the globe doesn't know sign language. Mm. Because think of the barriers that would come down if everyone knew sign language. No matter what language you spoke, you could always communicate. And no matter your disabilities, apart from being blind, you could communicate. And, you know, so it just is a, it's such a lost opportunity, but that's such a great example you bring up and it's totally true. But the thing is with sign language, it's not even universal because different countries have different- um, Yeah, they do. Different versions of sign language. You have the American, you have ASL, American Sign Language. And then I, I know like South Koreans, they actually have their own version of sign language as well as Chinese and that's other- right. And there was a wonderful, There was an incredible uh, video that just went viral uh, very recently about black sign language, which is different. And it was so, it's such a beautiful video if you haven't seen it, um, where this young woman is, this young deaf woman is describing some of the nuances of black sign language, black American sign language, I should say. And it's just awesome. I mean, it was just so, it was so, such an eye opener. And then of course there's the uh, Native American sign language that has a whole lineage in our country. And then sign language originated in France actually, which you know what's crazy is the house that I, the location that I found to shoot that, the final part of the movie in Europe, that house used to be a school for the deaf. Oh really? No kidding. And it's why I chose that location. When it came, I, I said, okay, I have to tap into that crazy, you know, synchronicity. Cause it was so, it's so, it was so nuts. And then also, um, I think there was an interview you did. It was a Q and A after one of the press screenings online uh-huh. where you said you visited, there's this, I can't remember what the name of it, but it's this, this building in Paris where there is a room where you have absolute silence and you visited it with the sound, with the sound designer for the film. Nicola um, Becker, yeah. Yes, and, and his assistant Carolina Santana, who is amazing too. Right, so I think it's kind of like this interesting parallel where you have this room of absolute silence in the middle of Paris, and then you film these scenes at a school that was a, a school for, for the deaf. So I just think that's actually like, I love when you have those kind of little um, parallels and those little moments of- um, Oh, so cool, you're so right. We The way I approach filmmaking 
is a little different than, than most people, or so, at least from what I've heard. And the way I approach it is I, I want everything to feel like an experience. I want to have an experience at every stage. So that experience of kind of starting to understand sound and this movie, we really went for an experience of trying to find that. And you're, you're, you're completely right. We did, we did that whole very sensory experience in Paris. And then of course we end up shooting a section of it there. And we actually ended up shooting in Belgium, but yes, that, that is same experience. And, and we also did our sound. We, our sound brought us from, from Paris to Los Angeles to Mexico, where we did the bulk of our sound in Mexico. So there was always this sense of, a, of, a, of an experience beyond just the technical. It was always this crossover, because I think that's the way creative experience works. You know, it's not, it's never about some isolated experience. It's always, it always relates to the outward experience you're having. No, it does. Um, so like you mentioned, um, so Nicholas Becker, he worked also on Gravity. And when I watch, whenever I watch this film, there's two films that always come to mind. Gravity, and there's this film by um, by the a director called Pigan, it's Long Day's Journey Tonight. And these oh, it's such films, an awesome movie. It is so good. I love, and I love films where I'm a visual person, but I'm, I also love like when I get immersed in films. And your film with the two of them are three of my favorite film experiences with, with regards to set. So it's how I experienced the century. And, and it's kind of this weird thing where your film, where it takes you through sound in a very, um, you're, you're relying on vision because you're watching it. And, but I think the sound helps to translate the images, but the absence of sound actually helps you to understand them more. Like the, with one of the kids Absolutely. in the scene, with the kids yeah. in the field and you hear the grass. But yeah. something you don't like we mentioned we talk about memory and we don't need to hear the grass to know what it sounds like. Yeah. Well well that's the that's beautiful. I mean that we we did so much discussion about what you just said. You know, we, we spent so much time talking about that very dynamic. And um I think that's the language of film. I mean, a cut is always about whenever you cut film and paste it to another image, it's about juxtaposing two things to make something that's greater than the sum of its parts. And it was exactly that that we're after in this contrasting of diegetic sound and omniscient sound and how, it is, how that actually becomes something that's bigger, you know, and, and raises our awareness, just like you're saying. And suddenly we can hear the grass when we don't hear it. And suddenly we, when we do hear it, we remember that we forgot to think about it. <laughs> so my next question is kind of relates to like building the building those scenes and building the sound like you I know you you and your team work very hard to make sure that the things we hear like a heartbeat or the grass or the wind like we hear it but, but we also experience and feel it and I want to ask you about building those scenes with regards to the emotional connections of the characters because for both Ruben and Lou they actually have a very emotional connection to sound and one of the things I notice is when we learn about their histories, we're not learning about their histories from them directly or from conversations between the two of them. For Ruben, we know about his um, his drug addiction because Lou called um, his, yes, sponsor. his yeah. sponsor and we learned that he was a drug addict through that. We learned that Lou had a traumatic experience with her mother committing suicide because of a discussion with her father and Ruben. And I wanted to ask you about building those emotional connections and how you structured the fact that we don't learn about them from them. We learn about them from other people. Yeah. Well, 
you know, I, I don't love exposition in movies. And I think that when we get to discover things, when we get to build our muscles, in, in other words, you know, for me, the magic of storytelling is when we learn in that way, mm. when we start to want to learn about a character. So we start paying attention to details a little more when we're spoon fed as we're, as frankly, we're, we're used to, you know, I think in most things we're used to being spoon fed things. Even when we learn Ruben's an addict, we don't learn it. We have to kind of go, wait a second. Okay, you were smoking outside and that's a problem. And who are you talking to exactly? Because it's never even said that he's his sponsor. You have to put that together. And, I, and that's a language in the cutting of this movie that we worked. I worked with my, my wonderful editor, Mikkel, on um, very diligently to really kind of hone in on, on what happens when we don't just hit you over the head with information. Number one, it's written that way. Um, it would, of course, been extremely easy to expound on Ruben's past. But I'm much more interested in how that past moves into the present mm -hmm. in ways that become a revelation rather than an explanation. So yeah, you get almost no exposition about Ruben's past, but there are clues everywhere. And you know, the, his past is so distinct and so understood from him as, as a building block, but also what you know about him if you're watching is much more than you would ever know if you were told. And so I, I am I'm much more interested in that language. And I'm also, there's a magical language in, in film and cinema that, that I am really fascinated with, which is our own ability to create contexts and worlds. I think our brains are so sophisticated that when we are not spoon fed and when our hands are not held and when something actually has a degree of authenticity, the smallest things can become so big, you know? So for instance, lose a cutter, you know, she's, she cuts herself and there's a whole context to why people might do such a thing, but there's a lot of um, commonality in that experience. Well, it's never said that she's a cutter um, ever. And if you blink, you might miss it. And, but what you our our brains can establish from that is so massive in terms of who she is, especially with the little amount that you do understand about her at the end of the movie, that you start to understand that Lou has her own journey in this movie. It happens to be off screen, but it happens anyway. And what do, and I love how our brains, if we're given something that's authentic enough, can create that whole world without it ever being spoken. For me, this film is about three people. It's about Ruben, Joe, and also um, Lou, and how the three of them relate. Because when you think about it, this film has actually a very small cast, but you don't feel that the cast is small. And we learned so much, so much about the world through these three individuals, but also the other people that they that they come into contact with. I wanted to ask you about casting him because this is a very important. This I think he's a very important character in the fact that he's a he's a bridge for Ruben into transitioning into this world that he's going to be in which is a world of silence and then for Lou he's the person that Lou turns to when she realizes that she can't help Ruben and for the two of them one thing about the two of them is there's never a moment of judgment where they where they judge Ruben for the way he's feeling because they understand that this is a massive right, right. Event he's going through like he had no preparation there was no from what we've seen, he had no idea he was going to lose his hair. He didn't have time to adjust. 
right literally within a space of a few days this yeah. girl that he was experiencing is being taken away from him and yeah. for, and i think for characters like joe and lou you need actors who can be empathetic and can carry that across and i wanted to ask you about casting them specifically for these two roles well that's exactly what i was looking for is that degree of sensitivity um, that you're talking about and I, I think it goes to the heart of a lot of what we've been discussing today which i find fascinating which is about that kind of sensitivity, that awareness, that ability to empathize because you understand. And you're, and I, I love the way you voice that. I think it's just so cool. And so both of those people, uh, talk about Olivia first, she is that in, in spades. She's a hypersensitive person. She's over maybe hyper empathetic. And she's that way because she's contended with things in her life. And she obviously has a gift as an actor, but that, well, I would just go as so far as to say, I don't think there has ever been any actor that is gifted that doesn't have that quality, put it that way. I don't think, I, do, I think the two go hand in hand. So, uh, but Olivia really has that. And I felt it very quickly when I met her. She has exactly that quality that is so, the thing I always knew, Ruben has it also, you know, Ruben has to have that quality also. And that was, that was always how I saw that couple. They're both hypersensitive and they can feel it a mile away. They feel it before it's ever spoken from each other. And that's again, where that echo chamber occurs. It's like, what were you thinking? No, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? I felt like you were thinking something. Well, I knew you were thinking something, you know, it's that thing. And, you know, sensitive couples can have that. But yeah, I felt that from Olivia and it was an instinct that really bore fruit when we were shooting because she can transmit that because she has it in her. It's, it's sincere and she's just so talented. Um, and she, she raises the level, like what happens when an actor's like that is they raise the frequency of whomever they're with because that person knows they're being seen. And when someone knows they're being seen, they respond more authentically. And then there's Paul Racy, my God. I mean, it, you know, he's one of the more sensitive people I've met and he just has this whole world of real experience and he happens to just be this extraordinary actor he's like finding a picasso or finding a robert duvall in the in, in the middle of nowhere you know he's been working on his craft for 40 years he's been largely unnoticed in hollywood and working at you know deaf theater and stuff like that and he's uh he's just extraordinary i mean he's a but he's that he's so sensitive and i would say there's a degree of specificity in his sensitivity which goes which speaks to CODAs, uh, CODAs being children of deaf adults. CODAs are really interesting people, and I met many of them. And there's a quality that many of them share, which is a hyper, hyper, hyper empathy, because they have a very interesting lot in life very frequently, if, especially if they are born hearing to deaf adults. They become the liaison between the deaf and the hearing worlds. And they they're 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 kind of have a role of being caretakers of having be of being this bridge, and I just I and almost all these codas I met who are like wonderful and deviant and incredible people, I talk about an invisible scenario, right? Like it's fascinating. Talk about people that have an invisible culture that nobody even knows they're from deaf culture. And most people would say they're not from deaf culture because they're not deaf, but that's, that's, to, that's to thoroughly misunderstand deaf culture. So they, you know, in the case of Paul, his first language is ASL, didn't speak English until he was six or something. And um, that's his culture. 
and yet no one knows it. When I drove him to the land the very first time and showed him the house where he was going to be taking care of these deaf addicts, many of whom are deaf addicts or were deaf addicts, many of whom were addicts and had contended with that, he welled up with tears thinking about the enormity of that responsibility because this was a man who understood what that meant, you know? And that scene that you referenced, that scene where in the last moments where, that he has with Ruben, though that to go through that emotional process of having to speak to someone and having to actually say goodbye was so overwhelming for him that you feel it because he has that sensitivity. And I know you're, I know you have to get ready to go. So this is the, actually the perfect way for me to end this because you talk about um, Joe saying goodbye to Ruben and the end of the film in the last act, there's a scene to me that felt like a goodbye. And this is where Lou and her father are singing this song. And my French is like <laughs> minuscule. I barely remember anything I learned in school, but it felt like a goodbye. And it felt like she was singing a song of lovers saying goodbye. And the, and the way the, the transition from hearing her singing and you watch Riz's face, like he gives such an amazing performance in this film, but the way how everything just starts to become static and it matches his expression beautifully. And I want to ask you about that song and about using the static as a transition from hearing to no hearing, because to me, I saw that as her saying goodbye to him. And then there's the scene afterwards where he's saying goodbye to her and he's telling her it's okay. But I also thought he was telling himself that it's okay to say goodbye to his hearing too. Cause I felt like that was the moment where he finally, finally realized there's nothing wrong with being deaf. He may lose his hearing, but he's gaining something else, which is, I think is a way of communicating. He's gaining a way to experience the world in a new way. And I wanted to ask you for, a, this is my mm-hmm. final question about that. Oh. oh, it's just so awesome. This is such a great conversation, by the way, you're fantastic. And I just like, it, it, it's really honoring as a as a writer and a filmmaker to, to, to talk to someone who's so clearly paid attention and been moved by these things. And the idea of those being three goodbyes is really, is really a phenomenal observation. And, and, and I, I, would, I would call them three layers of goodbye. That the, the coming, you know, when you, when you spent a, a movie in the space of denial, you know, to peel back the layers uh, that might bring you to acceptance, it's not gonna happen in one moment. And, and so I think that that's what they are. That song written by Arthur H, who's a, who's a French musician, just phenomenal artist in his own right, uh, is very much about death and goodbye. It, 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 the song is literally about that, uh, it, but it's in French. So unless you speak it, you don't get that, but you do um, get it, I hope, which is exactly what you're saying. First layer is peeled back. Part of that layer is for us as an audience also, which is to say we get to go through that experience again where we indulge in the music and then remember that we forgot that he can't, <laughs> you know? That, that while we were listening, he cannot. So again, he has that invisible, that invisible disability that we, are, we have already forgotten about. And then so we remind ourselves, okay, right. And then we have that next scene and, you're, and then another, that's another layer being peeled back. You're right, it's okay. It is a message for himself, but he doesn't know it yet. And then that final scene is when he actually hears his own words. Mm-hmm. No, honestly, I just, I'm so happy to talk because for the last couple of years, a lot of the films that I've connected to are the films that I've related to very personally. And um, this was one where I was like, ah, 
where I'm going through this experience of not only with my disability, but just act just like with life, like I've been through so much in the last couple of years or like multiple surgeries and whatever. And it's like, I find as a film critic, film is ha- is helping me to not only speak about film is not only um, cathartic for me, but it's also a way for me to, I think, understand myself better because it's helping me to think of things. Like when I watched this, like I really did think about, okay, eventually I might lose my hearing completely or I might just lose a, a significant portion of it. And it was just like, okay, I've been, I've been around people who have been deaf. I grew up, I went to a school where we kids who were deaf and we had, and it was in, it was in the special education class because I'm dyslexic too. And there were kids who were deaf and there were kids who were physically disabled. And that doesn't frighten me, but it's just like being emotionally prepared. And I just thought about Ruben, like imagine losing your hearing or, or this ability you had just suddenly with no warning. And I just want to thank you for, and, and the crew for what you did, because I think this is a very important film. And I hope a lot of people watch it because I really hope it gives them a perspective on people with disabilities and people who, who are deaf and unrealized. As Joe's house, and there's nothing wrong with being deaf. There's nothing wrong with communicating differently to others. Yeah. Well, I, I hope people watch it also, but really... It's just very wonderful to talk to you. And I, I very much appreciate your, your perspective and, and I'm really moved by it. So thanks so much. Thank you so much. And I know you have to go. Darius, before you go, is there anything that you would like to promote? Is there anything that you're working on that you can say? I'm deep in a write uh, a script right now that's kicking my ass. And I, <laughs> I <laughs> but, but that's good. That's where I like to be. And um, I can't speak about it yet, but it's very intense and it's not a Marvel movie. <laughs> but anything like sound of metal i'm sure we're all going to be i'm sure we're all going to be enjoying it and it's going to be amazing so again thank you so much for your time and i hope you and your family stay safe in these ridiculous times and that we all make it up on the other end <laughs> oh me too uh, so stay healthy and all the best thank you you too so everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Carolyn Talks. And before I wrap up, as usual, I'm going to have to give my spiel of where you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CarrieCNH12. For this year, I've been part of the Virtual Roundtables by the African American Film Critics Association. And you can watch our Virtual Roundtables with Black creatives in the film and television industry, including Jamie Foss for his film Soul, which is by Pixar, and Jingle Jangle, which is on Netflix by David Talbert and his wife, Lynn Talbert, and also the conversations we've had with David Oyelowo for his film, Come Away. Please, everyone, wear a mask, stay safe.